Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. So on Tuesday, there's this election. I saw it on on Facebook. Apparently, it's this Tuesday, something big happening. So I thought it might be a good idea in preparation for Tuesday for me to suggest to you who to vote for. So here on my last Sunday as your pastor are my list of favorites. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Relax. So there is this thing Tuesday, right? It's not our first rodeo. It won't be our last. And on Tuesday, some things will happen. One thing that I celebrate is this. Every time we have the freedom to walk into a a polling station and and make our voice heard. That is a privilege not the whole world knows. And so I give thanks and worship personally this day for the power of letting our voice be heard, for the immense freedom of choosing our own leaders in this land. That's a privilege, a high honor that we, we hold dearly and, and we preserve, we protect, because it is, it is something sacred that we trust with one another. But we also know that sometime Tuesday night or Wednesday morning or some Thursday in January, we'll know the results of this election. And we can predict confidently that a good number of us will be disappointed and a good number of us will be satisfied and there will still be this ever widening chasm of ideas between us. And this is one of the reasons why these past four weeks, I've been trying to talk to you as pastor and congregation about one of the most important conversations we could be having right now. How to stay one. How to remain in union and solidarity with one another as the body of Christ. There could be nothing more important or urgent these days than for us to demonstrate to a broken, fractured, and fracturing world what it looks like to live by another way, to live in union with one another. So on our first Sunday together in this series, I said some things. We talked about the last and longest prayer that Jesus prayed. Right before he was arrested, he prayed, Of all the things that he could pray about to the Father, he prayed that we might be one. But he prayed it specifically because if we are one, if we find in our solidarity a a oneness of purpose between us, then the world around us, the cosmos, the present order of things around us, will see in our union with each other that there is another way to order life. And the next Sunday, part two, I called that sermon Cancel Culture. 
We talked about what it means to live in a culture in which it's becoming easier and easier and easier to just erase people. If you meet somebody you don't agree with, just erase them. If you find somebody whose opinions and way of orienting into life is is an affront to you, just cancel them. And we talked about the reality that upon the cross, all of your records of wrongdoings, all of my records of offenses were canceled in Christ. But on that Sunday, I suggested that if they are canceled, if my long list of offenses is canceled because of the work of Christ on the cross, well, then that must also mean that yours are canceled. And if yours are canceled, that means that even the ones who have a longer list than yours, surely, right? A longer list, they're canceled as well. And I suggested on that day that not only did Jesus cancel our sins and our record of offenses, but he canceled the very act of cancellation itself. That the power of the cross is that we don't have to cancel each other out anymore. And on that Sunday, I said it means that we must abide with our diversity. It means that sameness is not the same thing as oneness. That oneness is not sameness. That unity doesn't mean uniformity, but in our diversity among and with one another. There is something that's being canceled, and it is the very act of canceling out each other. And we also said the next Sunday, which was this past Sunday, that the thing that God was doing in Christ was scooping together all the broken fragments of a shattered world. And we used a big, long, fat Greek word, didn't we? Uh, Anakephaliasathai. And I know you used it all week long in your conversation. Anakephaliasathai. And we said it's a word that means... The, the scooping back up together into one head, all the broken pieces. And we said, this is what God is doing in Christ. And we said on that day that real religion, I mean defined, religion literally defined is from the Latin religio or to religament parts of a broken body. And today... Just a couple of days away from a great demonstration of national division, I'll remind you that any public display of division and disunity is only a public projection of private divisions that are in our hearts and heads. So today, I want to simply offer a word that will hopefully frame our expectations not only about this week, but about our shared future together as the body of Christ. Because the stakes, my sisters and brothers, the stakes are high. The stakes are high for the body of Christ in the world. And the truth of the matter is, they've always been high. And Jesus knew from the very first disciple that he recruited, that he was recruiting diversity. And in recruiting diversity, I'm talking about racial diversity, ethnic diversity, economic diversity, theological, ideological, political diversity, like we talked about these last three weeks. In recruiting all people to follow him, Jesus knew that there would be tension and knew that there would be hard work ahead of us 
to work at maintaining the unity that he had prayed for. In fact, there's this really great story that is in the Gospels. It's in all three of the the synoptic Gospels. The synoptic is the word that we use to describe the same Gospel. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, are the Gospels that share basically kind of the same stories, right, but from different perspectives. In all three of the synoptic Gospels, there's this story where one day some leaders come to Jesus and, and they ask him a question. And from the outset, you know it's a trap. You know they're trying to trap him into saying something that will label him one way or another. And they say, hey, is it, is it lawful to, to give taxes to Caesar? Is it right that we pay taxes to the emperor? And you know that story because that's the story we, where he asks for a coin. And then he says, hey, whose face is on the coin? They say, Caesar. And he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. We know that story. But sometimes we forget the multiple layers of political dynamic that are all around that story. Because at any moment when Jesus is drawing such crowds that he drew, those crowds were filled with as many as five political parties at once. And on the day that somebody said, hey, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? It's quite possible that as many as five political parties all were leaning in to listen to his answer. We had the Essenes and the Zealots, and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and and the Herodians. And every one of them, they oriented into life with some seriously strong-held convictions about what a person of faith was supposed to do, and, and strong convictions, each one of them, about the role of the empire, the role of government, the role of, of taxes and tax structure, and what's fair and not fair, every one of them had strongly held convictions about what it meant to actually be a person of faith in the middle of that kind of context. Take, for example, the Essenes on one end of the spectrum. The Essenes were a group of religious um, pacifists. They believed deeply that God was going to send a Messiah. And in sending that Messiah, a whole kingdom, a brand new, not Roman kingdom, would emerge. But in believing that he was going to send a Messiah that way, their answer to it was to retreat into communes separate from the rest of the world, to not participate in all the actions in the city, and so they would retreat away and live an ascetic life. And if you were to ask the Essenes, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Well, the Essenes would say, yeah, maybe, maybe not, but we recommend you just change your address. (laughs) Yeah. But on the other end of the spectrum are the zealots. The zealots, they had a strongly held, vigorously held, um, very literal translation or affection of the Hebrew Bible. A very strongly held literal interpretation in which they considered the presence of Rome in the Holy Land to be not only offensive, but blasphemy. And so they would organize, um, well subversive acts, violent acts of aggression and terror against Roman outposts here and there. And their hope to overthrow Rome was so that they could partner with God in establishing the kingdom of the Messiah when the Messiah would come. If you were to ask the zealots, listen, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? The zealots wouldn't give you an answer. They would simply draw their sword and say, "Uh, would you like to rephrase the question? 
And right next door to the zealots are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they understood where the zealots were coming from because they too had a strongly held affection of the Hebrew Bible. But they understood reality, and some things are just some things. And they realized the empire was there to stay, and, and so they realized they have to really kind of go along to get along. And so they began to spiritualize their interpretation of the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. And so that's why they were the ones always getting on to Jesus about not being spiritual enough. Jesus, why don't you fast on Tuesdays? Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands in a ceremony before they eat like the rest of the faithful do? So they spiritualized what it meant to be a person of faith. And if you were to ask them, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? The Pharisees would say, yeah, but reluctantly. And if you could cheat and avoid it, all the better. Because they saw cheating the empire as a spiritual victory over their domination. And you back up and there are these two others. There's the Sadducees and the Herodians. And they have a lot in common, really, because they are realists. They realize that, well, do I pay taxes to Caesar? Of course I do. That way we stay safe. That way there are good roads to, to travel on. And they they capitulated in several ways in order for their systems to coexist with the system of Rome. Now you back up and you look at all five of these different uh, theological, political orientations, ways to be faithful people in a broken world, and they had strongly held opinions about that question, among others. So when they ask Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar?, they are all leaning in, listening for something to say. Something that he might say that will either draw them to him or repel his teachings. So Jesus couldn't say a thing that would not offend one of them. Jesus literally could not answer because what they were asking was yes or no, black or white. Give me an answer. You've got two choices, yes or no. Is it lawful? And in many ways, there's no way he could have possibly nuanced an answer that would have satisfied all of them. So in that way, he's very much like a Baptist preacher in the year 2020. Just going to leave that there and tell you that he did something even better. Give me a coin. And he puts a coin. They put a coin in his hand. And he says, whose image is on this coin? And I love it because he uses creation language language from the poems of genesis at the beginning of your bible he uses creation language whose image is on this coin and they say caesar's then render to caesar the things that bear the image of caesar and render to god the things that bear the image of god knowing that all five of those political parties knew their bible and they all knew what genesis says about the image of god the image of God is in you and in your neighbor and in all of us. And if the image of God is in you, then there's no part of you that does not belong to God. And what he was doing in that moment, that most perfect response, was he was elevating what it means to find our identity in him. That no longer can there be a dominant way to identify yourself by any kind of political party or human institution, but in reality you have been created by God in his own image 
That means that every part of you belongs to something more eternal than anything that happens on Tuesday. So every election cycle, there is a passage of Scripture in the Psalms that I read again and again. It's Psalm 146, and we hear these words, Do not put your trust in princes, in mortals in whom there is no help. When their breath departs, they return to the earth. On that very day, their plans perish. So just as a framing perspective to offer you as your pastor, I want to remind you, my sisters and brothers, that come Tuesday and then Wednesday and then Thursday and then every day until the end of days, there is one and only one authority that gives us our identity and that claims us as his own. And that one identity is no one other than, more than, or less than Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I'm telling you that because, it, because it's true. I'm telling you this because no matter what happens this week or any other week, there is something firmer than election cycles. There is a throne that is more permanent than any open seat in Washington, D.C. And as long as we put our trust in that throne, then we know how to find our oneness because our oneness will not be found in any expression of our political system or our parties or human affiliations. Our oneness must be found in nothing more than, less than, or other than our identity in Christ. Now, this is why I believe Paul was so passionate when he wrote this passage that Glenn read a moment ago in here in the sanctuary and that Adam read a moment ago in the Family Life Center. He's appealing to a group of Christians at Ephesus who know exactly what it feels like to be divided by all kinds of groups. There were Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free, every kind of expression of human opinion and position. And this is what he says. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you, I beseech you, I urge you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Because the truth is you and I, we celebrate, we say amen, we clap when we, when we say things like uh, there is one Lord and one throne that is eternal. But you know what? We don't really believe it. We don't really believe it. I mean, if we actually, really, truly, literally, in all practicality, believed with our whole heart that Jesus is Lord, then that means we would yield and submit every fiber of our being to him and and we would reconcile the, we would recognize that we have to eliminate all other allegiances that we have other than the allegiance we have to him and so when paul says something like this lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called we've been called to literally humble ourselves and yield before the one who has shown us a different way to be alive and if we're going to live a life that is worthy of that calling and it means we, at the very least, stop hating on those who are 
in disagreement with us or stop uh, posting against those who are in disagreement with us. But there's something more. He continues. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To maintain the unity of Spirit. This, so this union that I'm talking about, this solidarity, this oneness, is not something you and I create. You and I are not creating unity. This unity is a unity that we participate in. He says, do everything you can to maintain something that already exists. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they are in this perfect union of communion and mutual love and mutual submission, and we are invited to participate with God in that kind of union. So when Paul says, do everything you can to maintain that thing, that's what he's talking about, to maintain it between us. And he continues, he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. And right here in this text, this gorgeous text, there's a lot of oneness going on. Seven times the word one is used in two verses. Within two verses, the word one is used seven times times and Jesus knew when he was drawing all people to himself Jesus knew there would be some Herodians and some Sadducees and Essenes and Zealots and Pharisees when Paul wrote these words Paul knew there would be some Jews and Gentiles male and female there would be some slave and free and you know that between us there will always be that those who are Republican and Democrat and Independent and fill-in-the-blank, Green Party, uh, whatever they all are, and you know there will be liberal and conservative and everything in between, and I'm just talking about this room. And yet Paul says, that's why I beg you, I beg you, to do everything you can to maintain the unity of the Spirit that has been given to you. And all of these ones, seven times the word one is used, seven, the perfect number, perfect union. He begs us to, to work on it. And there's a lot of wanting going on. One body, not many. One Spirit. In fact, the one Spirit that is in you, doing the thing the Spirit's doing in you, cleaning you up, putting you back together, forgiving you of your sins, giving you a future with hope, that spirit is also in the person with whom you disagree and is also in the person that you don't understand, working on them too. And if you and I could understand this call to oneness, we would recognize that there's more behind the identity that we are seeing. And God is constantly at work doing it. So one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. When we have baptism here, the question that we ask when they walk into the water is, what is your confession of faith? And we, we teach them to use these words, Jesus is Lord. Because from the very first confessor of the first century, that's been the confession that there is no other Lord but this Lord, that Caesar is not Lord, nations are not Lord. There is one who has complete authority over me, and I yield to it 
by immersing into these waters humbly, rising up to walk in a new way of living. See that? That's what we're called to. But that's why what we say when we leave this place is crucial that we're, that we're saying the same thing. Not about who you vote for, not about what direction a country should go. It's important we say the same thing about what he eternally matters more than anything. In Romans chapter 12, we hear Paul talking about oneness of voice. Listen to what he says. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony, not unison. See, harmony takes more than one kind of note. Good harmony has many notes sung together to make a new kind of sound. May you live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're like, well, how are we going to do that? And because the reality is we come into this place or we come into this hour and we have a lot of different influencers that have helped shape where we are. We all like to say we're only shaped by the word of God. We're only shaped by Jesus. Okay, so you're the one, right? I mean, we are constantly being, being fed images, messages that, that are shaping our consciousness about what it means to be alive in the world. And not all of them are holy. <laughs> so we come in here with all kinds of experiences and woundedness, expectations, hopes that are not in sync with each other. So how do we do something about that? Here's my, here's my word. That is what worship is all about. When we gather for worship, whether it's in person or online, what we're doing is we are yielding to the possibility that some ancient words and some hope-filled prayers and some glorious music will somehow provoke the imagination to consider the possibility that we could live in a world right now that is different than what we're seeing outside. And when we come here and we hear these words and we're provoked to consider a new way to be existing with each other, we leave and we actually repair the world one week at a time. But it begins with all kinds of chaos in, in our minds and between us. You're sitting in a pew or in a chair next to someone with whom I promise you, you completely disagree politically. In this church, we have left and right and a bunch in the middle. You're going to find somebody on your left and on your right of any given topic. So how do we do it? I want to show you something. A few years ago, I used an illustration for a different purpose to make a different point, but it kind of works here. There was a, an experiment done by a group of researchers with metronomes. You know what a metronome is. It keeps time. But they used 32 metronomes and set up 32 different metronomes and then individually, one at a time, set them all off until they're just going in a bunch of different uh, cadences, different directions. They're in the same time sequence, but they're all at different points, right? It's just chaos. But over the course of four minutes, something fascinating happens. They begin to click in sync with one another. In fact, just take a look. I've sped it up a little bit. 
and cut it up a little bit so you can see each of the metronomes are being set off one at a time and you can hear the chaos listen for it absolutely no unity no oneness no synchronicity but after about a minute it begins to change a little bit but it still sounds like rain on a tin roof and after about two minutes it sounds like this still not quite clean, as my percussionist son would say, not clean. But around three and a half minutes. And closer to four. know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how does that work? How does it happen? Well, this is the fascinating thing. You may have noticed, we'll play it again, but without the sound. You may have noticed that underneath there is this, well, this foam cushion, this foundation that, that is not anchored down. It's kind of floating on some movable cans. It goes back and forth, back and forth a little bit. So now, every time, two begin to click at the same time. Those those two who click at the same time, the shared energy between the two and the shared momentum of hitting in the same direction at the same time, just two of them, will be transferred down to the foundation. The foundation absorbs it and transfers it to the others. And then there are three and then five and then 11 and 22 are hitting at the same time until they are all hitting in perfect synchronicity because of the foundation that it is built upon because there is a foundation that can absorb take in all of our different rhythms all of our different cadences it can absorb the energies that we bring into here that have been shaped by anything but Christ on the outside and as we worship, as we yield to the Lordship of Jesus, as we read Holy Scripture and, and allow our spirits to be lifted by music, as we lift our minds to Him, there's something happening. In fact, we begin to find a kind of sync with one another. Not uniformity, but unity. Because now, upon the same foundation, the foundation of Christ, there is drawing down from us everything that is unchristly and transferring back to us that which is Christ. And that is how you and I have any hope at all of demonstrating to a fractured and fracturing world what it looks like to live together in harmony by coming into this hour of worship and by yielding our lives to something more, to something better than all of the promises of any platform in our nation, but yielding ourselves to the promise of eternal hope. But it, it can't happen until, until it happens in here. I mean, we, it sounds great, but it, it can't happen until, well, two or more of us begin to recognize we belong to something bigger than both of us. And maybe you want to pray that today. 
I mean, maybe you've been hearing me talk about this, this beautiful image of living in union with each other. And maybe you've heard me over the last three or four weeks talk about what it's like to actually be diverse, to not negate our diversity, but to embrace it and to find something of solidarity between us. But it, but it means that maybe you, you have to have a conversation first with the one who has drawn you in. And if so, maybe you use these words. Lord, today I recognize that the thing that's missing in me is, yeah, I, I want to be a part of something that's so much bigger than any of my ideas. I realize I've come to the edge of all of my best options. And I recognize that, that you may have a better plan for my life than I have. So I humbly lay down my ego. I crucify my own control. And I yield before you. And I want to follow you. Not just now. Not just this week. But I want to follow you wherever you lead me. If you pray that kind of prayer, or maybe even just prayed it just then, you need to know that you've begun a journey that, that never ends. And, and the praying of that kind of humility starts a relationship with Christ that allows you to have the power in you to participate with the rest of us in the, in the synchronicity of Christ-like love. And we, we need you to say something about that, though. You don't need to keep that secret to yourself. So if you prayed that today and you're in the sanctuary then at the end of our benediction, two of our pastors are going to be right over here. Uh, Glenn and, and David will be here ready to talk to you. If you prayed that today and you're in the Family Life Center, two of our pastors will be there as well. Michael McCullough and Adam Courtney will be there waiting to talk to you. And if you prayed at home, we want you to email us because we want to continue this conversation. Email us at connect at jcbc.org. But now what we're going to do is offer our benediction because now with all that we've heard and considered in this hour, it's time to do something about it. To, to, let our, to let our faith grow feet. To live outside these walls as if we actually believe what we have said inside these walls. So if you'll stand where you are to your feet, but wherever it is that you go from here, may Christ go before you to prepare your way. May Christ go behind you on the days that you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step further at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than even a sister or brother. May Christ go above you on the days that dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But mostly, may Christ go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm with his. Go in peace. <laughs>